the court has issued two new opinions for us, and today I'll be reading one of them. And now, the opinion of the Supreme Court of the United States in Murray v. UBS Securities, LLC, et al. Enjoy. Justice Sotomayor delivered the opinion for a unanimous court. Justice Alito filed a concurring opinion in which Justice Barrett joined. Under the whistleblower protection provision of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002, no covered employer may discharge, demote, suspend, threaten, harass, or in any other manner discriminate against an employee in the terms and conditions of employment because of protected whistleblowing activity. When a whistleblower invokes this provision, he bears the initial burden of showing that his protected activity was a contributing factor in the unfavorable personnel action alleged in the complaint. The burden then shifts to the employer to show that it would have taken the same unfavorable personnel action in the absence of the protected activity. The question before this court is whether the phrase, quote, discriminate against an employee because of, unquote, in section 1514AA, requires a whistleblower additionally to prove that his employer acted with retaliatory intent. Below, the Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit endorsed such a requirement. This court disagrees. Part 1 Congress enacted the Sarbanes-Oxley Act in the wake of the Enron scandal to prevent and punish corporate and criminal fraud, protect the victims of such fraud, preserve evidence of such fraud, and hold wrongdoers accountable for their actions. Of particular concern to Congress was abundant evidence that Enron had succeeded in perpetuating its massive shareholder fraud in large part due to a corporate code of silence that discouraged employees from reporting fraudulent behavior not only to the proper authorities, such as the FBI and the SEC, but even internally. Indeed, employees of Enron who had attempted to report corporate misconduct internally were often fired. Congress's response was 18 U.S.C. Section 1514A, which prohibits publicly traded companies from retaliating against employees who report what they reasonably believe to be instances of criminal fraud or securities law violations. The provision establishes that no employer may discharge, demote, suspend, threaten, harass, or in any other manner discriminate against an employee in the terms and conditions of employment because of the employee's protected whistleblowing activity. If an employer violates this provision, the employee can file a complaint with the Department of Labor seeking reinstatement, back pay, compensation, and other relief. If there is no final decision from the Secretary of Labor within 180 days, the employee can file suit in federal court seeking the same relief. 
if the whistleblower does bring an action in federal court, Sarbanes-Oxley directs the court to apply the legal burdens of proof set forth in Section 42121B of Title 49, United States Code, a provision of the Wendell H. Ford Aviation Investment and Reform Act for the 21st Century, or AIR-21. This incorporated burden-shifting framework provides that the whistleblower bears the burden to prove that his protected activity was a contributing factor in the unfavorable personnel action alleged in the complaint. If the whistleblower makes that showing, the burden shifts to the employer to show by clear and convincing evidence that it would have taken the same unfavorable personnel action in the absence of the protected activity. This framework is not unique to Sarbanes-Oxley and AIR-21. It originated in the Whistleblower Protection Act of 1989, or WPA, which provides legal protection for whistleblowers within the civil service. The framework was meant to relieve whistleblowing employees of the excessively heavy burden under then-existing law of showing that their protected activity was a significant, motivating, substantial, or predominant factor in the adverse personnel action, and it reflected a determination that whistleblowing should never be a factor that contributes in any way to an adverse personnel action. Congress then incorporated the easier-to-satisfy contributing factor framework into a series of similar whistleblower statutes that protect non-civil service employees in industries where whistleblowing plays an especially important role in protecting the public welfare, including, as noted above, the airline industry, Air 21, and the securities industry, Sarbanes-Oxley. Part 2. In 2011, petitioner Trevor Murray was employed as a research strategist at securities firm UBS within the firm's commercial mortgage-backed securities, or CMBS, business. In that role, Murray was responsible for reporting on CMBS markets to current and future UBS customers. Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, regulations required him to certify that his reports were produced independently and accurately reflected his own views. Murray contends that despite this requirement of independence, two leaders of the CMBS trading desk improperly pressured him to skew his reports to be more supportive of their business strategies even instructing Murray to clear his research articles with the desk before publishing them. Murray reported that conduct to his direct supervisor, Michael Schumacher, in December 2011 and again in January 2012, asserting that it was unethical and illegal. Schumacher expressed sympathy for Murray's situation, but emphasized that it was very important that Murray not alienate his internal client, i.e., the trading desk. When Murray later informed Schumacher that the situation with the trading desk was bad and getting worse, 
as he was being left out of meetings and subjected to constant efforts to skew his research. Schumacher told him that he should just write what the business line wanted. Shortly after that exchange, and despite having given Murray a very strong performance review just a couple months earlier, Schumacher emailed his own supervisor and recommended that Murray be removed from UBS's headcount. Schumacher recommended in the alternative that if the CMBS trading desk wanted him, Murray could be transferred to a desk analyst position where he would not have SEC certification responsibilities. The trading desk declined to accept Murray as a transfer, and UBS fired him in February 2012. Murray then filed a complaint with the Department of Labor alleging that his termination violated Section 1514A of Sarbanes-Oxley because he was fired in response to his internal reporting about fraud on shareholders. When the agency did not issue a final decision on his complaint within 180 days, Murray filed an action in federal court. Murray's claim went to trial. UBS moved for judgment as a matter of law, arguing, among other things, that Murray had failed to produce any evidence that Schumacher possessed any sort of retaliatory animus toward him. The district court denied the motion. The district court instructed the jury that in order to prove his Section 1514A claim, Murray needed to establish four elements. One, that he engaged in whistleblowing activity protected by Sarbanes-Oxley. Two, that UBS knew that he engaged in the protected activity. Three, that he suffered an adverse employment action, i.e. was fired. And four, that his protected activity was a contributing factor in the termination of his employment. On the last element, the district court further instructed the jury, for a protected activity to be a contributing factor, it must have either alone or in combination with other factors tended to affect in any way UBS's decision to terminate his employment. The court explained that Murray was not required to prove that his protected activity was the primary motivating factor in his termination, or that UBS's articulated reason for his termination was a pretext. If Murray proved each of the four elements by a preponderance of the evidence, the district court instructed the burden would shift to UBS to demonstrate by clear and convincing evidence that it would have terminated Murray's employment even if he had not engaged in protected activity. During deliberations, the jury asked for clarification of the contributing factor instruction. The court responded that the jury should consider whether anyone with the knowledge of Murray's protected activity, because of the protected activity, affected in any way the decision to terminate Murray's employment. When the court previewed this response to the parties, UBS indicated that it would be comfortable with that formulation. The jury found that Murray had established his Section 1514A claim and that UBS had failed to prove, by clear and convincing evidence, 
that it would have fired Murray even if he had not engaged in protected activity. The jury also issued an advisory verdict on damages, recommending that Murray receive nearly $1 million. After the trial, UBS again moved for judgment as a matter of law, which the court denied. The court then adopted the jury's advisory verdict on damages and awarded an additional $1.769 million in attorney's fees and costs. UBS appealed the decision, and Murray cross-appealed on the issues of back pay, reinstatement, and attorney's fees. The Second Circuit panel vacated the jury's verdict and remanded for a new trial. The court identified the central question as whether the Sarbanes-Oxley Act's anti-retaliation provision requires a whistleblower employee to prove retaliatory intent, and, contrary to the trial court, it concluded that the answer was yes. The court acknowledged that the jury instructions correctly identified the four elements of a Section 1514A claim, consistent with circuit precedent. The court concluded, however, that the further instruction on the contributing factor element was wrong as a matter of law. Looking to the text of Section 1514A and focusing in on the phrase, discriminate because of, the court nevertheless held that to prevail on the contributing factor element of a Section 1514A anti-retaliation claim, a whistleblower employee must prove that the employer took the adverse employment action against the whistleblower employee with retaliatory intent. The court noted that this holding was consistent with its recent interpretation of nearly identical language in the Federal Railroad Safety Act. The court further determined that the district court's failure to instruct the jury on Murray's burden to prove UBS's retaliatory intent was not harmless, despite circumstantial evidence at trial that UBS terminated Murray in retaliation for whistleblowing, such as the close temporal proximity between Murray's whistleblowing and termination, and the fact that Schumacher had given Murray a good performance evaluation prior to his whistleblowing. The court concluded that retaliatory intent is an element of a Section 1514A claim, and the district court erred by failing to instruct the jury on Murray's burden to prove UBS's retaliatory intent. The Second Circuit's opinion requiring whistleblowers to prove retaliatory intent placed that circuit in direct conflict with the Fifth and Ninth Circuits, which had rejected any such requirement for Section 1514A claims. This court granted certiorari to resolve this disagreement. Part 3 Section 1514A's text does not reference or include a retaliatory intent requirement, and the provision's mandatory burden-shifting framework cannot be squared with such a requirement. While a whistleblower bringing a Section 1514A claim 
must prove that his protected activity was a contributing factor in the unfavorable personnel action. He need not also prove that his employer acted with retaliatory intent. Before explaining why a Section 1514A claim does not require proof of retaliatory intent, it is necessary to understand what that term means. The Second Circuit seemed to conceive of retaliatory intent as prejudice or animus. UBS insists that it means something else, arguing that the Second Circuit mentioned animus only twice and that the circuit explicitly required a showing of retaliatory intent, not hostile feelings toward the employee. UBS's circular definition does not reveal anything about what retaliatory intent means, however, and UBS itself equated retaliatory intent with animus in its briefing below. Thus, consistent with the Second Circuit's opinion, this court treats retaliatory intent as something akin to animus. Section A The Second Circuit and UBS both rely heavily on the word discriminate in Section 1514A to impose a retaliatory intent requirement on whistleblower plaintiffs. As UBS acknowledges, the Second Circuit's holding was expressly predicated on the word discriminate. That word, however, cannot bear the weight that both the Second Circuit and UBS place on it. Consider the statutory text. No employer subject to Sarbanes-Oxley may discharge, demote, suspend, threaten, harass, or in any other manner discriminate against an employee in the terms and conditions of employment because of the employee's protected whistleblowing activity. To start, the placement of the word discriminate in the section's catch-all provision suggests that it is meant to capture other adverse employment actions that are not specifically listed. Drawing meaning from the terms discharge, demote, suspend, threaten, and harass, rather than imbuing those terms with a new or different meaning. Here, there is no dispute that Murray was discharged, and so it is not obvious that the or in any other manner discriminate clause has any relevance to his claim. According to UBS, though, discriminate in the catch-all provision relates back to and characterizes discharge such that to be actionable, discharge must be a manner of discriminating. Accepting this statutory construction argument for argument's sake, as this court did in Bostock v. Clayton County, 2020, the question is whether the word discriminate inherently requires retaliatory intent. It does not. In Bab v. Wilkie, 2020, this court explained that the normal definition of discrimination is differential treatment. 
In Bostock, the court likewise observed that discriminate typically means simply to make a difference in treatment or favor of one as compared with others. Prohibited discrimination occurs when an employer intentionally treats a person worse because of a protected characteristic. In elaborating on the meaning of discriminate, Bostock made clear that a lack of animosity is irrelevant to a claim of discrimination under Title VII. An animus-like retaliatory intent requirement is simply absent from the definition of the word discriminate. When an employer treats someone worse, whether by firing them, demoting them, or imposing some other unfavorable change in the terms and conditions of employment because of the employee's protected whistleblowing activity, the employer violates Section 1514A. It does not matter whether the employer was motivated by retaliatory animus or was motivated, for example, by the belief that the employee might be happier in a position that did not have SEC reporting requirements. The Second Circuit was wrong when it held that the word discriminate in the statute's catch-all provision imposes an additional requirement that the whistleblower plaintiff prove the employer's retaliatory intent or animus. Accepting that the word discriminate is relevant to the intent inquiry, the only intent that Section 1514A requires is the intent to take some adverse employment action against the whistleblowing employee because of his protected whistleblowing activity. The statute is clear that whether an employer discriminated in that sense has to be resolved through the contributing factor burden-shifting framework that applies to Sarbanes-Oxley whistleblower claims. Section B. Statutory context confirms that the word discriminate does not import a retaliatory intent requirement. Requiring a whistleblower to prove his employer's retaliatory animus would ignore the statute's mandatory burden-shifting framework. The burden-shifting framework was conspicuously absent from the Second Circuit's opinion, and UBS now insists that the statute's burden-shifting addresses only causation, not intent. Not so. Burden-shifting frameworks have long provided a mechanism for getting at intent in employment discrimination cases, and the contributing factor burden-shifting framework is meant to be more lenient than most. Consider the burden-shifting framework this court has devised for certain Title VII claims. In Watson v. Fort Worth Bank and Trust, 1988, the court explained that in order to facilitate the orderly consideration of relevant evidence, courts rely upon a series of shifting evidentiary burdens that are intended progressively to sharpen the inquiry into the elusive factual question of intentional discrimination. 
This idea applies with equal force to the statutory framework here. Because discriminatory intent is difficult to prove, and because employers control most of the cards, burden shifting plays the necessary role of forcing the defendant to come forward with some response to the employee's circumstantial evidence. The result is that the trier of fact has the full picture before it and can make the ultimate determination as to whether the employer intentionally treated the employee differently, and worse, because of the employee's protected trait or activity. The burden-shifting framework provides a means of getting at intent, and Congress here has decided that the plaintiff's burden on intent is simply to show that the protected activity was a contributing factor in the unfavorable personnel action. Once the employee makes that showing, the burden shifts to the employer to demonstrate by clear and convincing evidence that the employer would have taken the same unfavorable personnel action in the absence of that behavior. While many statutes dealing with employment discrimination apply a higher bar, requiring the plaintiff to show that his protected activity was a motivating or substantial factor in the adverse action. The incorporation of the contributing factor standard in Sarbanes-Oxley reflects a judgment that personnel actions against employees should quite simply not be based on protected whistleblowing activities, not even a little bit. While the Second Circuit attempted to make retaliatory intent a requirement for satisfaction of the contributing factor element, UBS does not ask this court to follow suit, and for good reason. The ordinary meanings of the words contribute and factor suggest that the phrase contributing factor is broad indeed. Showing that an employer acted with retaliatory animus is one way of proving that the protected activity was a contributing factor in the adverse employment action, but it is not the only way. Here, the burden-shifting framework worked as it should to sharpen the inquiry into the elusive factual question of intentional discrimination. The jury heard both sides of the story. It then determined that Murray had shown that his protected activity was a contributing factor in his firing, while UBS had not shown that it would have taken the same action in the absence of his protected activity. That burden-shifting, and not some separate heavier burden on the plaintiff to show retaliatory intent, is what the statute requires. Section C. UBS and its amici argue that without a retaliatory intent requirement, innocent employers will face liability for legitimate, non-retaliatory personnel decisions. UBS posits a hypothetical where an employee's whistleblowing causes a client to end their relationship with the company, 
leaving the whistleblower without any work and ultimately leading to the elimination of the whistleblower's position. UBS asserts that, under petitioner's view, the employer would be liable for retaliation, despite the absence of any intent to retaliate. The statute, properly understood, does not lead to that result. The statute's burden-shifting framework provides that an employer will not be held liable where it demonstrates, by clear and convincing evidence, that it would have taken the same unfavorable personnel action in the absence of the protected behavior. The right way to think about that kind of same-action causation analysis is to change one thing at a time and see if the outcome changes. The question is whether the employer would have retained an otherwise identical employee who had not engaged in the protected activity. As the Federal Circuit has explained in the WPA context, the same action analysis does not require that the adverse personnel action be based on facts completely separate and distinct from protected whistleblowing disclosures. In that case, the correct inquiry was whether the employer would have taken the same action if it had learned of the contents of the employee's protected disclosure through other means. In UBS's hypothetical, the relevant inquiry would be whether the employer still would have fired the employee if the client had left for some other reason. If so, it will have no trouble prevailing under the statute. To be sure, the contributing factor framework that Congress chose here is not as protective of employers as a motivating factor framework. That is by design. Congress has employed the contributing factor framework in contexts where the health, safety, or well-being of the public may well depend on whistleblowers feeling empowered to come forward. This court cannot override that policy choice by giving employers more protection than the statute itself provides. A whistleblower who invokes 18 U.S.C. Section 1514A bears the burden to prove that his protected activity was a contributing factor in the unfavorable personnel action alleged in the complaint. But he is not required to make some further showing that his employer acted with retaliatory intent. The judgment of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit is reversed for the reasons explained above and the case is remanded for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of this opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.